1: Good afternoon and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's our sp- monthly Q&A show and this month's program is pre-recorded because I am still going through a huge backlog of questions sent in by you wonderful listeners, Uh going back to some that have been sitting in my inbox since beginning of the year. So just sit back, relax. Enjoy the show. If you asked a question a while ago and it hasn't been answered, it probably will be on this show. Going to go straight to the email box and answer a question from Laurel, who says, My niece and her husband bought a home in Minnesota in 2018 with 2% down bank financing when they recently decided to move and wanted out by a certain date and did not want to deal with real real estate agents. They phoned Zillow and accepted an all cash offer. They learned about this option from former neighbors who had done the same. I became curious and looked up their former address. The transaction is listed as a short sale, but the property is 100% owned by Zillow. What's a short sale? (laughs) So Laurel, I don't know if you followed the news about Zillow and their big home buying program, but I think what you are seeing here is that this is one of the properties that Zillow is selling off in their, um, huge sell-off of properties that they overpaid for and then, uh, had to sell for less than the amount that they had paid. This was a big news story, I don't know, earlier in this year and, uh, I don't know. Lots of, lots of real estate investors had a small but nasty chuckle about that because Zillow, of course, had been famous for many years for their automated, automated valuation model called the Zestimate, uh, being not accurate as to the actual value of the property. So there was a whole thing going on in the, Real estate social media community saying, well, see, they bought properties based on their own estimate and look what happened to them. So I suspect that they listed it as a short sale, uh, not because it was a true short sale, which I'll explain in a minute, but rather because they were selling it for less than their acquisition costs. So, um, a short sale is usually thought of as a situation where a lender is agreeing to take less for a property than the amount of their remaining loan. It's commonly used when folks get behind in their payments, maybe don't have any equity and uh need to get an offer so that they can go to the bank and say, we owe you 200000 but the top offer we got was 170000 and therefore, we need you to take $170,000 instead of the $200,000 we owe you. Obviously, the banks don't really love that. They will, in fact, negatively report on your credit for paying them back less than what they, uh, in fact, are owed. Uh, they can even go after you for that difference in in one way or another, either through a judgment or by uh writing it off and sending you a 1099 as if you had gotten $30,000 worth of income, which means now you owe taxes on $30,000. But I, I don't really know. And I'm not sure the public knows what Zillow's underlying structure was. They were almost certainly borrowing the money for these acquisitions, probably from a line of credit or money that they had raised from individuals or something like that. So it could in fact have been a true short sale. Uh, my guess is maybe they, put it up on the market that way to attract attention to it. And what they meant was they are selling it for less than what they have in it. Don't know for sure though, but hope that answers your question. Also, if you go back in the recorded archives at real life, you will find that we did a show within the last uh, month or two on short sales. That's a much more complete description of what goes on. So if you're interested, I would listen to that program. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer day, but we're just going into the unanswered question archive to uh, try and clean up some of these questions this week. If you ever have questions for Real Life Real Estate Investing, you can always send them to askvina at gmail.com and we'll get to them on a question and answer week. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week and we're going into the archives that I've saved up from askbina at gmail.com and trying to clean up some older questions from listeners who have been nice enough to provide content for our monthly question and answer show. A question from Diane who says, I was listening tonight and this was a, this was a show that we had done on creative deal structuring. I didn't get a chance to ask this question, but how could I structure a deal without money? I currently rent and have been renting for six years and I'm ready to buy, but I only have about 5,000 saved up and my credit for a conventional loan is not where it should be. Do you have any creative suggestions to offer? Uh, well, yes, Diane, $5,000 might not be enough to buy the house you want from a in a traditional sense, in the sense of I'm going to go to the bank and $5,000 will be my down payment because $5,000 would be a down payment on like a $50,000 house, or maybe if you were an FHA, something like a $150,000 house, and there aren't a ton of those around these days. So uh yeah, it's it's quote, probably not enough to do the deal conventionally. However, you might be able to find an individual human being who has a house that they don't maybe they don't want to own it anymore. Like they don't wanna they don't want to rent it anymore. Let's say let's let's start there. Let's start with let's start with uh housing providers who might have a house that they're tired of going in and turning it over in between residents or Maybe they've run out of money or energy to do that. And they might accept an offer like, how about if I give you $5,000 down and you carry the financing for me? You carry a first mortgage, maybe, if you don't already have a first mortgage on your house, and I will make you payments of X dollars a month every month for the next 20 years, which is sort of like having a rental But it also meets your goals of not having to manage or maintain that rental because that'll be my job. In fact, a good place to start, if you like the place you're living, might be with your current housing provider. You might want to call them up and say, so what's your plan with this house? Would you like to take payments for me to buy it or would you like to lease it to me with an option to buy Uh, Another possibility would be something like uh, find a financial friend who wants to invest money passively in real estate and maybe that person has good credit and has a sizable down payment and you could add their down payment to your down payment. You could have an agreement that you will co-own the house, but you will have the right to occupy it. Nothing wrong with one person living in the house and a different person getting some appreciation and I mean you'd make the mortgage payments so there would be no more money out of their pocket maybe after that first however much they put in to get the money down but they would be getting half the appreciation and they would be able to depreciate their half of the house for tax purposes assuming that their tax situation was such that they were allowed to do that and so they would be getting benefits for years and years and years. And then when you got, when you sold the house, they would get half of the equity and the equity would consist both of the growth of the property and also the mortgage pay down that you had created during all of that time. So there's a number of different ways to acquire your own property creatively. When I bought my first house, it was on a lease with option to buy because I didn't have enough money to put money down and I didn't have the credit to float a loan. So I found somebody who was willing to lease a house with an option to buy and put down a minimal amount of money, did a lot of sweat equity myself on the property, put in a new kitchen and a new bath and a new furnace as, as that was affordable <laughs> And after 10 years, I uh, actually exercised the option after five years because my credit had improved enough to do that. And after 10 years, I sold the house at a profit. So don't give up. Study your creative structures. And in your case, you're just going to apply them to your own property to live in instead of looking for something like an investment property at first. Uh, another question from via email from Rod, he says, it seems to be hard to find an escrow agent who will hold my assignment fee when the closing will be with a different title company. You teach to collect the assignment fee up front from your buyer. I have found some escrow agents won't agree to hold your assignment fee if they are not going to be doing the closing How do I find an escrow agent to do this? Well, Rod, my first question would be, why would you find an escrow agent to do that? That money does not really need to be held in escrow because it's your money. It's not an escrow fee. It's not, it's not, you know, earnest money. It's the money that you get for assigning the contract. So why are you not just telling your buyers, Here's the deal. Here's the contract that you, that I will be assigning you. Uh, here's an agreement for assignment of the contract. And I'm going to need $5,000 in order to sign all this paperwork over to you. So give me $5,000. I have a feeling that you're concerned that people, quote, won't do that. They won't do it if you can't show them clear title and you can't schedule a closing date Because, you know, the seller's saying, well, I'm gonna need another sixty days to move or something like that. But if everything's in order, if you've done your title search, if the title's clear, if the seller is already gone or ready to move out right away, just ask for your assignment fee. I I find that ninety percent of buyers are willing to do that. And of course there's a there's a whole agreement around that that says that if the seller can't or won't come to the closing, then I'm gonna refund your assignment fee, but otherwise I am not. If you back out, I am not. If you find one of the 5% of buyers who just says, well, I'm just not comfortable with you holding on to this money. It doesn't just have to be an escrow agent who would hold that money. It has to be somebody with an escrow account. What sorts of people have escrow accounts? Well, title companies do. So do attorneys, and so do real estate agents, or more specifically real estate brokers. So you might want to try one of those kinds of folks. And, you know, when the, when the professionals are holding it, they, especially attorneys, they usually want to be paid an escrow fee, but it, it'll be, you know, fairly minor dollars, fifty or a hundred dollars. Hopefully you're making more than that on your wholesale deal. Yes, I think that you should collect your assignment fee up front because it stops you from uh getting, quote, offers and assigning your contract to someone who is not really sure that they can close, who's hoping they can find the money, who might back out if they uh decide they don't like the property that much because they've only really got $500 to lose. That's all they gave you as a, quote, deposit. So try one of those other folks, but first try just collecting it yourself. Next question is from, uh, I'm just going to call her E, because in a minute I'm going to tell you what her last name is. She says, can you please help me understand how an investor can be available logistically to respond to leads while working a full-time W-2 job? Isn't it critical to answer the phone when leads are calling. And then she signs it and she says, my maiden name is Ender. Can I quit my job, please? That's kind of an inside real estate joke because, of course, an Ender is somebody who does not need to work anymore because their assets uh, provide all of the income that they need to live their lifestyle. So... If my if my last name were Ender, I would never change it. <laughs> no matter. In fact, in, in fact, I may change my last name to Ender now that I know that such a thing exists. So, e the um the key thing about uh getting the ans- getting the phone answered is not necessarily that you be the one to answer it; it's that it get answered by an actual human being. It's, I, I feel very strongly that you're going to have a much higher lead conversion if an actual human being is answering your phone. That human being could be a virtual assistant that you hire to answer your phone while you are working, or it even could be an answering service, the difference is the answering service is probably going to charge you only when the phone is ringing and the virtual assistant is probably going to want some kind of an hourly thing to be there and be on alert to answer the phone this can actually be a good thing if you have a lot of leads because let's face it most leads are not from motivated sellers they are from people who um Got your marketing and are curious about what you would offer and will actually tell you under questioning that they're not really thinking about selling or, you know, they, they, they might move in a year or that sort of thing. So you might, you might just benefit from having somebody else ask those initial questions so that you can then sort out which ones need to be called back and which ones are more, Uh, You know, you might call them back, but just to say, yeah, I don't think I'm your solution. So uh, virtual assistants can be hired overseas relatively cheaply. Um, Somebody who answers the phone and just goes through a questionnaire is probably going to make four or five dollars an hour. Uh, With an answering service, you probably don't want to pay them to go through the full questionnaire because, Well, number one, it will always be different people answering the phone at that answering service. And so training any one of them how to ask the questions nicely and what to say if certain answers come up is it's you just you just really can't do it. Also, a lot of answering services do charge by the minute and they don't charge five dollars. I mean, it's you know, their hourly rate probably works out to be one hundred and fifty dollars. So it can get very expensive uh, for an answering service to go through all of the questions. If you're going to use an answering service, you probably want to cut down your full interview form to four or five simple questions like, what's your name? What's your phone number? When's the best time to reach you? What's the address of the property you'd like to sell? How much are you asking? And are you flexible on that? And then just have the answering service text you the answers and you can go th- uh, through them when you get home from your job and see if there's anybody who's a priority to call back. Thank you very much for your question. And yeah, congratulations on already being an ender. Ha ha ha. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. And, uh, just kind of going through some archives here, knocking them down real fast so that we can start taking new questions this coming month. Uh, question from Diane or Diana, she says, as a professional investor, <laughs> what do you think of investing in duplexes? Renting one unit is an Airbnb and the other one is a regular lease. Wow. That is, thats is two completely different questions, Diana. Um, everyone is going to have their opinion about the best quote property class. Is it single families? Is it apartments? Is it smaller multifamilies like two and three units? Is it mobile homes? Is it condos? Is it, you know, there's so many different property classes and the people who, invest in a particular one, um, do it for their own reasons, and then build up a lot of logic and arguments about why theirs is the best one. For me personally, duplexes are not the best one. I find that that particular living arrangement where there's two people sharing a wall or in, in our area, it's much more common that the one unit is upstairs and the other unit is downstairs. There seems to be a lot more drama in that sort of property than there is in a big apartment building or a single family home where you're not sharing a wall with anybody. Um, the, the two families I've owned, I don't know. You you only remember the bad stuff, right? But I, I remember a lot of situations where, uh, downstairs tenant acquired a dog. Despite the fact that his lease said there was no dog and, uh, he wasn't, didn't pay a pet deposit and wasn't paying a monthly pet fee. And upstairs tenant was terrified to the level of a phobia of dogs. And downstairs tenant not only acquired a dog, but kept the dog on a chain chained to the back porch of the house. So of course upstairs tenant calls and says ah, I don't know I can't live here anymore you have to get rid of this dog and downstairs tenant says oh well it's a it's an emotional support pit bull that I got from the pound and we said okay can we see your letter from your medical professional and two days later Ah, uh, one was generated from one of those websites where you can pay fifteen dollars and get a letter saying you need an an emotional support animal. And so now we have to tell upstairs tenant uh, we actually can't make him get rid of the dog because he's claiming it's an emotional support animal. So upstairs tenant moves, and then uh, as we are saying to the downstairs tenant, you cannot leap your dog chained outside during a cincinnati winter it is dog abuse you need to adequately take care of your emotional support animal he also moved so that sort of story the people upstairs are making so much noise their kids walk too loudly across the floor and uh he keeps parking in the driveway and i can't get back to the back where the garage is, or he's filled up the garage was supposed to be for both of us with all of his junk. And I can't park there. It just, it seems like a constant stream of that sort of drama (laughs) in two families. I know people though, who would say, man, two families are the absolute best because that way, if one, if a unit goes vacant, you've still got 50% of the rent coming at you and your particular idea. And this is why it's two questions of using one unit as an Airbnb and the other one as a regular lease is a totally different question. My guess would be that the person on the regular lease would not love the fact that people were coming and going from the other units. Um, I have stayed in Airbnbs that were two units where both units were Airbnbs. And so, you know, we simply didn't bother each other and I didn't know who was staying next door and it, it was all fine so um, duplexes as airbnbs and the economics of that are something that i personally have not experienced or looked into very deeply but i think if i was going to go for a two unit and make one into an airbnb i might make the other unit into an airbnb unless of course i was house hacking and i was going to live in that other unit <laughs> thank you for your question diana and i'm sorry that the answer was as it very often is with real estate questions it depends okay question from steve and this one is a long question so i'm going to try and summarize he says there's a property next door to my home it's an adjacent property it would make a great short-term or long-term rental I covet the two, that word is not used often enough, covet. We should all use that more in sentences. I covet the two barns next to my property, which would make a great addition, and I need to store tractors and toys there as I have nowhere to put them on my own property. Uh It would also give me better access to the back five acres of my own property. The passive income would easily pay for both the And both the annual property tax bills. The current owners are part-time vacationers to the property two to four times a year for two weeks at a time. They've indicated they want to sell but are unsure when to do so. They enjoy coming back to the property presently, but they do not use the barns at all. I'm motivated because I have the resources now to easily do the deal, but I want to lock in a price because of inflation concerns and to make sure that we have the first right of refusal on purpose on on the property. What creative ways can I achieve this? And what would be my options? Uh, So Steve, you've, you've, you've outlined to us, to the listeners, what I assume, you know about what the owners of the other property like about the property and also what you like about the property. And it's that sort of information that helps to structure creative deals. And it seems to me that just breaking it down, they want to be able to come there two to four times a year and you want to be able to use the barns and have access to the back of your property and ultimately to own the whole thing because then you have two pieces of land next to each other and an income property. So, you said first right of refusal, but I would probably be looking at something like a lease with an option to buy where you said, let's, let's set a price now. I will agree to buy it for that price sometime within the next five to 10 to maybe even 15 or 20 years, depending on how the price relates to current value. And in the meantime, I will pay you X dollars a month in income. On the property. And w- if you want to come and stay at the property, I will give you up to four weeks a year for free as long as you notify me at least, you know, you need to know, you need, a little, you le- you need to let me know months and months and months out whether you're going to be using the property in a particular week because otherwise I'm going to have it short term rented to somebody else. So Mr. Seller, what you get here is a guaranteed purchaser who you know is going to take care of the property after you sell it, because I live right next door. You get income from a property you're not getting income from right now. You get your desire to use it as needed, as long as that meets certain requirements that I need to have, because I'm also intending to rent it to other people. What do you think? And the structure of that is going to be a lease with option to buy you're gonna set an option price let's say the property I'm just making up numbers obviously let's say the property's worth 300 right now and what they would like to sell it for is 350 well in that case you'd probably want a 10-year option to buy it if the value is 300 right now and they're asking 300 and that's a perfectly fine uh, number with you you might ask for a two to three year option. Which, because it just occurred to me that their concern is going to be, well, what if we're not done wanting to stay here after three years? Well, then they could extend the option on their side, maybe by letting you skip a payment or two. You're going to set a monthly rent to them that makes sense based on your exit strategy, of Airbnb being the property. So if you think you can. Uh, safely net $2,000 a month. You'll probably not want to agree to a monthly payment of more than $1,000 a month from that payment. They will make any payment on underlying mortgage and they will to pay for the taxes. I think you're going to have to carry the insurance because Airbnb insurance is different than other kinds of insurance. So I think this is very doable. You guys do have um, interlocking right? Meshing goals for the property. They don't use the barns you want to. They don't use it all year you want to. So I think there's something that you could put together there. You just have to have more conversation, make the offer, make them a T-bar so that they know what their current situation is and what their future situation is. I think there's definitely something that you could do there. And I'm anxious to hear if you do it. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. We collect questions all month long and all year long. You can normally call into the show and ask them, but right now we're going through the email archives. If you would like to uh, add a question, it doesn't matter if you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, man, I just thought of a question that I need to ask on Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, Go ahead and send it right now to askvina at gmail.com and we'll pick it up in a future show. Again, that's askvina, A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it's question and answer week. We do this every month and invite listener questions either via email at askvina at gmail.com or in most months by phone. Not this month, though, because I am four questions, five questions from emptying out the radio show question file in my email. I've been feeling bad because each month we've been asking for new questions, and I've, of course, taken the new questions ahead of the old ones. So there's been some sitting here since... Well, this one was January 19th. So, um, just trying to make sure we get to everybody's question. Uh, by the way, if you are a newish IRA investor, if you've opened up a self-directed IRA or 401k and you are dealing with the frustration of not being able to contribute very much money to those, because, you know, the upper limits on what you can contribute every year are still way less than what it costs to actually invest in a piece of real estate. You might want to check out CincinnatiRia dot com, Cincinnati R E I A dot com, because there is an upcoming all day seminar about how to make creative investments in your IRA or 401k where you're investing a smallish amount of money uh partnering or maybe even borrowing money for the rest and then doing things with those properties that are sort of interesting, like airbnb them. They're also going to talk about joint venturing and uh, doing options in your IRA. That's uh, an all-day Saturday seminar that Cincinnati RIA is hosting, along with a number of other groups around the country. So uh check it out, CincinnatiRIA.com. All right, back to the question archive. Uh, this question is from Randy and he says is three to three and a half percent an accurate rule of thumb to include in prospective investment briefs in regards to depreciation credits that could be passed through to investors for real estate equity investments. Boy, Randy, there's a bunch of stuff about that paragraph that, is setting me on alert. One thing is the term rule of thumb. I don't think we want to be using rules of thumb to say to people, hey, here's your potential positive tax consequence to partnering in this deal. Uh, part of the reason for that is that people's tax situations are different. If, if you're A potential investor makes a whole lot of money and is not a, quote, real estate professional. His passive losses from depreciation are actually limited. They phase out after a certain level of income for people who are not real estate professionals. And that is way too complicated for you to be advising people on unless, of course, you happen to be a CPA who is familiar with their tax situation. So I understand where you're getting the number because, um, you know, the, the depreciation, the years over which you can take depreciation are 30 or 27 and for residential properties and 31 and for, uh, commercial properties. And you just did some math and said, let me divide a hundred by 27 and or 31 and But it's so... It's, it's such a complicated, um, both, both personal thing for the investor and also it depends on the property, right? Because normally the full investment is not depreciable because the land does not depreciate. So you have to take a certain amount and say this, this, this is how much the land's worth. And then here's how much the part that we can actually depreciate is. Most CPAs seem to use a just a general kind of rule of thumb. <laughs> See, they do it too. Uh where they'll say, well here's the purchase price and we're gonna attribute twenty percent of that to the land or we're gonna attribute ten percent of that to the land. So if I invest a hundred thousand dollars, my depreciation might only be 80%, you know, only might only be on $80,000. And so saying that my $100,000 investment is, you know, three, 3% of that a year is going to be going toward depreciation is inaccurate. Also, uh, it sort of depends on what the structure of the partnership is. If I put in the $100,000, which is all the cash, but I only own one half of the property, I will only get one half of the depreciation. So, I guess the moral of this long explanation is don't try to predict other people's tax consequences for them in investment briefs. Say there there will probably be some additional tax benefits, it depends on your personal financial situation. Uh this is something you should you should consult with your tax professional about. I never try to calculate other people's tax effects of partnering in a property I send them. Uh, either to their tax professional or if their tax professional says, Josh, I have no idea. I don't do this kind of thing then I send them to one of the tax professionals that I know who does know that sort of thing. A uh, question from Stu who says, I had a CPA tell me that I can sell one of my investment properties, do a 1031 exchange into a beach house rent that beach house for a year or so and then convert it into a principal residence. In other words, move into it and wipe out the capital gains. Is that possible? Well, Stu, if a CPA who was knowledgeable about 1031 exchanges told you that that was so, uh, I guess I would dig a little bit deeper, but I would say it is probably so. I, I will say I have heard the same thing that if you hold a property to it for investment, and you convert, you convert it to a personal residence and then you live there for at least two years and then you sell the personal residence. You are entitled to the section 121 exclusion that allows you to sell a personal residence with up to a quarter million dollars in gain if you're single and 500,000 if you are married and uh, also own it with a spouse. However, Do remember that if you exchanged into the property, the basis on the property that you exchanged into it travels over to the new property. So I can see a scenario, and again, please consult with a knowledgeable CPA about this, where you had depreciated a rental down to zero. You exchanged into the beach house, giving the beach house a basis of zero, even though you, quote, paid half a million dollars for it or whatever, And five years later, you sell the beach house for $750,000. I would assume that the IRS would say that your basis was zero because that's what it was when you bought it. And you have you have a $750,000 capital gain. Well, you can only exclude a maximum of $500,000 of that capital gain. So you would, I think, be paying... Taxes even on the sale of your personal residence on the additional $250,000. This is a question to ask of somebody who uh, can can kind of outline all of the tax scenarios for you, but that would be my guess about what might happen if you were to do that. Uh, let's see. Question from Kay. Kay says... I'm new to real estate. I have three rentals totaling nine units. My mom owns one of the buildings. She just sold one in Florida and decided to pay off one of these three in Cincinnati and now she is faces capital gains. Whoa, it was a big day for capital gains questions uh of forty thousand dollars on that unit. We're trying to figure out how to avoid that. Maybe she should buy another property in Cincinnati. Does she have a certain time frame to do that? Are there any other ways to skin this cat? Does paying off the Ohio property count as buying something else or does it need to be a new sale? Any other suggestions that we aren't thinking of? Okay, so Kay, you did not directly say this, but I am reading into your email that mom already sold the other unit she already took that money and paid off one of your units here in Cincinnati and that means that it is too late for her to avoid the capital gains tax by buying another property because in order to do that she would have had to take the money from the sale of the house in Florida put it with a qualified intermediary and then gone out and identified another property that she wanted to buy within, she would have to do that within 45 days, identify the other property. And then she could have closed it within 180 days, but the ship has sailed on that whole scenario. Uh, she actually, assuming she's not already an owner of one of your properties in Cincinnati, she could have bought that property from you as a place to park her 1031 exchange money. You could have then leased it back from her with an option to buy. So you could continue to take the benefits and deal with the management. But again, the ship has sailed and don't feel bad. I I hear this question all the time. Oh, I heard about 1031 exchanges and I sold a property three months ago and I want to know how to do it. Too late. These have to be set up ahead of time. The money has to be not received by you. It has to be received by a qualified intermediary. And then, yes, there are timeframes about when you can buy it. The only thing that I can think of that might help her with that $40,000 capital gain is if she were to possibly invest that money in an opportunity zone fund. That's a special kind of fund where uh, she gets ownership, of partial ownership of some properties in opportunity zones normally. There is some kind of a fixed rate of return on those properties. And the big benefit is if she holds them for, or if the fund holds the properties for a certain period of time, uh, it's possible that those capital gains could be eliminated. But in any case, she would not have to pay them this year. The problem, of course, is I think she has already taken that money and paid off one of your buildings with it. So I don't think she probably has that cash available to put into an opportunity zone fund. But if there is some way that you could take her money back out of the property by say, say refinancing it, maybe she could do that. So I would do some research on opportunity zones. I would talk to a tax professional who is familiar with, uh, this sort of situation and, a, and, you know, hopefully your mother's situation as well. And next time, before you sell a property, then you're just going to use it to buy more investment property. Set up the 1031 exchange in advance. We do have a show back in the archives, uh, back from this winter, uh, all about 1031 exchanges and different ways to use them. So you might want to check that out at realliferealestate.com. Thank you all for listening to this week's question and answer week. The archives are empty. So any questions you have, send it to askvina at gmail.com, and we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.